Whew. Okay, Annie, give me the thumbs up. <laughs> okay. It's so funny. Last time she said nobody could see me because I had the podium way up here. <laughs> I don't want to be seen. I want you to see him. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, I just thank you so much for everything you are to us in our lives. Lord, I pray that this morning I'd not get in the way of what you plan to say or do, but that you would speak, that you would lead us into all truth, and Lord, that you would place a message in our hearts that perhaps we didn't even expect. It is in Jesus' precious name, for his glory and for the extension of his kingdom, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I am so glad to be here to talk to you again. Um, Kirk has recently been teaching on Nehemiah and how the people of Judah were exiles, having been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Upon their gradual return to uh, their homeland, rebuilding those broken walls became a priority to Nehemiah. And we've come to understand over the last couple of weeks just how people really did depend on those city walls for protection and safety in those days. As I was talking to the Lord, asking him what I should bring uh, to you today, he put on my heart to speak about a different story in the Old Testament that focuses on a different wall. Now, many years before the kingdom of Judah had been taken into captivity and the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down, a different army came against God's people. During the time when, uh, in which our story is set, the 12 tribes of Israel had separated into two different kingdoms, each with their own kings. The 10 northern tribes formed the kingdom of Israel and were ruled out of their capital city called Samaria. And the remaining two tribes of Judah and Benjamin became known as the kingdom of Judah, and they were ruled by their own kings out of their capital city, Jerusalem. Now, although many of Judah's rulers did evil in the Lord's sight, they did have some good kings. But I can tell you that the same could not be said for the northern kingdom. All of their kings were evil, prompting God's judgment to fall on the northern tribes first. They were repeatedly attacked by the army of Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, which is modern-day Syria today. In those days, we called them the Assyrians, right? Now, though God had helped his people in the past, and although the people of Israel could have cried out to him at any point, they chose not to. Instead, seeking shelter, they withdrew behind the fortified walls of their capital city, Samaria. So we're told in 2 Kings chapter 6, where our story begins today, in verse 24, that eventually Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army 
and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. So the city had been barricaded for so long with nothing getting in or out that its inhabitants began to starve. The people were reduced to eating anything. And to put it into context, we're actually told that they'd begun to eat donkeys and seed pods in order to survive. Now, that fact actually may be worse than it first appears to us, because you see, according to the law of Moses, Donkeys were unclean animals, and the Jewish people were not to eat them. But things were so desperate within the city walls that even a donkey's head was now being sold for a price of what today would be $500. Wow. Not only that, but a few ounces of seed pods were selling for a price of more than $30. One would think that things could not get any worse than they did. But a few verses later, we learn that in fact, the people of Samaria had actually began to kill their own children and consume them. Do you see how far these people were from God? They were so afraid of the peril at their gate that they were willing to do anything in order to save themselves. We can't imagine a worse situation, can we? And yet, there were four others who were in even more peril than those in the city. Four lepers were living outside the city walls, and we meet them in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3. It says, now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we'll die. If we stay here, we'll die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we'll live. If they kill us, then we'll die. These four men were considered outcasts by the people inside the city. Through no apparent fault of their own, infirmity caused them to be separated from their neighbors. Even the dire circumstances of the siege had not brought about a change in heart from those behind the walls. The lepers were consigned to a no-man's land between the locked gates and the enemy's encampment. Their conversation is almost humorous, isn't it? When they talk about their options, talk about being between a rock and a hard place, right? In the past, these four men had relied on the kindness of others for their survival. However, under these new circumstances, everyone had forgotten them Everyone had abandoned them. Despite the fact that they could not continue as they were, they were not welcome inside of the city, and there was no food for them there anyway. And so, out of options, the lepers chose to do the unthinkable. 
entrusting themselves to God's mercy, they faced the very thing that they feared the most. Believing that they had nothing to lose, they decided to surrender to the enemy. So what happened is they took that road that I'm sure that they never had wanted to take in the first place. Verse 5, at dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives." The unbelievable happened. The fully stocked enemy's camp was empty. Not a man was there. I'm sure that some would look at this and think, well, that is just a happy coincidence, right? But if you read the entire story, earlier God had promised through the prophet Elisha to deliver Samaria. Their wicked king, however, had refused to believe the prophet's message. But God, true to his word, had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses, what they thought to be a great army. And they had fled, just as God had promised. Not only that, but they left all of their provisions behind. Now, if you read on in the text, you'll discover that the lepers crept into one of the empty tents and ate their fill, carrying off both silver and gold and clothing, which they hid. And then they returned a second time for more plunder before their consciences began to bother them. Speaking among themselves, they came to the realization in verse 9, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let us go at once and report this thing to the royal palace. The godless within the city walls of Samaria had done nothing to help these men in their time of need. And yet, becoming aware of God's righteousness, the lepers realized that they could not hold that against them. The good news was so great that it would be a sin for them not to share it with others. And so the lepers went back to the people who had cared nothing about them, and they told the city gatekeepers how they found the Aramean camp deserted. And that news eventually worked its way through the city right up to the king's palace. But the people doubted both their testimony and the goodness of God. Suspecting an ambush, the king chose to send his own spies to check out the camp. Of course, they eventually did come to believe the lepers had been telling the truth, but it was some time before the people really trusted in the salvation that God had given them. There really is a wonderful application to this story for those of us who follow Christ, because God calls us to trust him. 
And we are to be willing to live outside of the seemingly secure walls that our culture has erected. Like the lepers, we are to turn our backs on the world and cast ourselves upon his grace, irrespective of the risk that that decision might entail. The writer of the book of Hebrews put it much better than I, when they spoke of Christ in Hebrews 13, verses 12 to 14, declaring, Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Jesus was willing to separate himself from the security and comfort that the world could give in order to do his Father's will. Rejected by mankind, he suffered in disgrace outside of the city gate, both in a literal and in a figurative sense. He did this in order to bring salvation, enabling us to become holy in God's sight through his blood shed on our behalf. As his disciples, there is a call on our lives too. We're also to turn our back on the security that the world offers. We're called to go outside the walls we have depended on for protection in the past. And even if we have to bear the same disgrace that he bore, even if we're also rejected by our neighbors, he asks us to cast ourselves upon his mercy and focus on our eternal home rather than our temporal one. And to anyone here listening or at home, if you've not yet made that decision to fully identify with Christ rather than the world, I would encourage you to start that journey with him today. No matter your fear or your reservations about what may eventually lie ahead, I want you to know that you can trust him. For there is nowhere that you can go where God has not already been before you. And he's promised to set a table even in the presence of your enemies, just as he did for the lepers in Second Kings. And let me point out to you, in case you missed it, that the heroes of our story today were lepers, no one would have chosen them for anything. They would have been vile and unclean, but God chose them to be his messengers. And he will choose you, no matter what other people think. I can tell you from my own experience that God's path is one that's worth following. It may not always be easy, but you're never alone, for he will be with you, even if others reject you and isolate you. You know, as I was planning to speak on this topic today, I did sense that the Lord was have, putting it on my heart to share with you a, a story from my own life. Because being put outside of the camp 
can mean different things to different people at different times in our walk with the Lord. There was a time, for example, in my own life when I found myself put outside of the camp, as it were. And the thing that made it so difficult to deal with was the fact that it was God's people who chose to exclude me. I think there really is nothing worse than when our suffering comes at the hand of a friend, right? Some of us may know what it feels like to be rejected by our family. Others may have felt neglected or even ostracized by God's own people. But even at times like that, we should never doubt God's love or his care for us. For no matter how difficult the situation may seem at the time, Jesus of all people understands, and he is able to use it for his glory and our eventual eventual good. Recently, I told you a little of my story concerning my husband's illness that led to him going to be with Jesus three years ago. And I think I may have mentioned in passing during that message the fact that during his illness, I also lost a job that I loved. Now, I know that I didn't elaborate at the time, but I do think that God wants me to share a little bit of what occurred. Because I think at times people tend to look at others, especially ministry leaders or teachers, as if they've got it all together. And we can think, oh, everybody loves them. And mistakenly believe that they really haven't experienced any of the things that we have. Yet truth be told, leaders in particular have often experienced deep wounds at the hands of the people closest to them. During the course of Colin's illness, I worked for a church as one of their pastors. However, a year after I joined the staff, there was a transition in the leadership of the church when a new senior pastor came in uh, to take over. Now, naturally, he had a new vision for the church, and very unfortunately, that vision did not include me. Now, I do understand that they were wanting to go in a new direction, and actually, I have come to believe that God was leading them in what he wanted for the group. But unfortunately, the way that it was carried out left much to be desired. As the leadership transitioned over a period of months, I found myself being left out of meetings. People weren't really talking to me anymore. Decisions were being made about my specific areas of responsibility without me. And worse yet, I had to find out what had been decided from other staff members who were in the loop when I wasn't. It really hurt as those doors slowly slammed shut and I found myself on the outside looking in. No doubt, Satan was doing his best to make things worse, and he was the one trying to bring about division, but I began to honestly feel like a leper, excluded from my own community. 
It was made a lot worse because we were also dealing with my husband's critical illness at the time. And I felt like I was facing a road that I really didn't want to go down all by myself because those I counted on were not going to be there for me. In reality, I wasn't alone, even though I felt that way at the time. God was with me, and he had gone ahead of me every step of the way, but it hurt. Believe me, I tried to look at the situation differently, wondering if perhaps they were trying to spare me stress because of Colin's illness, but it soon became very, very plain in a variety of ways that my special circumstances of the time did not factor into what they did at all. For the first time in my life, I knew what it meant to be brokenhearted. You know, I never had really understood that before. The pain I felt, though, was real. It was almost as if my heart had been split down the middle. And it was then I remembered God's words in Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And as I began to pray, asking him to heal my broken heart, one day I saw a picture in my head, and you know that's just the way that God tends to speak to me. And I saw Jesus approaching me with his hands held out. And I could see the deep wounds in them that had been made by the nails. And as I sat there, I heard in my mind the question from Zechariah 13, verse 6, Lord, what are these wounds on your body? He answered, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. And I suddenly knew that he truly understood. If you have been hurt or betrayed, he knows what it is to be deeply wounded by those who are closest. He suffered rejection at the hands of the very people who should have loved him. But in truth, his suffering was part of God's plan to bring about the greatest of all blessings, the purchase of our salvation. And it was by those wounds that we were healed. I started to cry as I felt God asking me to trust him. For he promised to use his, my pain for his glory and even my eventual good in the end. As I sat there in his presence crying that day, he brought a memory to my mind of how my kids had loved glow sticks when they were little. And in an instant, I remembered that a glow stick really isn't any good to anyone until it's been snapped. It can only shine in a dark place once it's been broken. And I sensed him saying that we're a bit like that too. We want to be a witness for Christ, to share his light and his love with the world around us. Yet often we have to be willing to be broken in some way by the trials of life, to shine brightly for him as we should. 
No servant is greater than his master. In this world, you will have trouble, for it is then that he comes to us with a loving embrace and whispers that he understands. And yes, even in this, he has a purpose and a plan for us. Though that whole experience was one of the worst times in my life, I want you to know that he did set a table for me and he did give me a testimony of good news to share with others. I hold nothing against those who hurt me. In fact, I realize now that what happened was for the best. And he has used my voice to bring his message to a far greater group of people than ever before. You see, when we choose to follow him and trust him, he has a habit of working all things together for the good of those who love him. So as I call the band up now, I just, I want to tell you, you know, the love of God truly amazes me. And today, if perhaps you realize that in some circumstance of your life, you still feel as if you don't belong, as if you're on the outside looking in, that in some way in that particular circumstance, you are in no man's land outside the wall. That's okay. This is not really our home anyway. You need not fear, for Christ is with you. And you know what? I bet you he has given a couple of other lepers to journey with you. No matter what lies ahead, God has already gone ahead of you. Remember, there is nowhere that you can go that he has not already been. Your good shepherd has promised to provide for you even in the most difficult of circumstances. And just as there was a table set for the lepers, just as there was a table set for me, God will provide for you also. But forgive those who have wronged you. Don't keep the good news of all that God has done a secret. Share it with anyone who will listen, whether they accept it or not. I can honestly tell you that God is faithful, and he has never failed me yet.